Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Food. Love it or hate it, we all have to eat. For many of us, myself included, food rules our lives. For me, that's mostly been a good thing. But for some, the long-time effects of food obsession have not always served them well in life. Nationally prominent comedian and actor Dan Adud falls in the second category. In his memoir, Undercooked, he examines his emotional relationship with food from childhood on and honestly and comedically looks at where that's gotten him. I absolutely loved his book and expect you'll love Dan too. Then we sit down with Gabriel Nirbas and Andreas Rodriguez Ursua to learn how food, paella in particular, inspires people of Spanish heritage to gather right here in New Orleans. Finally, Duffy Ramirez and Chef Ross Dover of Palmetto's on the Bayou discuss how Palmetto's unique bayou surroundings brings nature right into the dining experience at the Slidell restaurant. We're examining the human relationship with food from all angles on this week's Louisiana Eats. Hi, my name is Dan Adut, and I am the author of Undercooked. In my office, there's an ever-growing pile of books stacked up high on my desk. Cookbooks and food books sent from PR reps, publishers, and friends. When we interview an author on this show, there's a pretty good chance that they reached out to me first. So it's rare that I find somebody on the shelf of the public library, and then direct message them on Instagram to set up an interview. I mean, look, I appreciate it. And I'll tell you what, this is the first book I've ever written. I never thought I'd become an author. So if someone reaches out to me and they actually read the book, I will do anything you ask me to do. I will come to your house and clean up. I'll tidy up the place. I will help you with your math homework, whatever someone needs. Dan Adut is a stand-up comic actor, and author of the debut memoir simply titled Undercooked, How I Let Food Become My Life Navigator, and How That's Maybe a Dumb Way to Live. When I checked his book out at the library and started reading it, I was struck by how, despite outward differences, Dan and I were spiritual cousins. Just like me, food has been the through line in the most important moments of Dan's life. 
Growing up as a middle child, Dan had a hard time finding his place in the family until he and his father discovered a shared love of La Gourmandise. As he grew older, Dan began obsessing over food, making it central in all his relationships. He writes about breaking up with girlfriends over dietary restrictions, hunting wild game off the Long Island Expressway, and traveling to Italy to eat at the best restaurant in the world, only to send the risotto back. Before we delved into these delicious stories, I began by asking Dan to describe the similarities he sees between his relationship with food and his relationship with comedy. So here's the thing. I have very different relationships with both of them, okay? So comedy to me is work. Comedy to me is going to the gym. Food is the complete opposite. Food is where I let go. It's my meditation. If I'm cooking, it's my meditation. And if I'm dining out somewhere, it's recharging my batteries. So they actually work pretty well in tandem. I mean, when I'm on the road, there's nothing I like more than kicking ass at a show and then finding the best restaurant in town and enjoying a really, really nice meal. Growing up with your love for food, that really set you apart in your family because no pizza for your birthday, huh, Dan? No, it was uh, was very young. I think I was eight years old and my parents wanted to take me to a pizza place. And I looked at my father and I said, really, for my birthday, you're taking me for pizza? Come on, you can do better. (laughs) (laughs) And oh, he did, didn't he? He did. He should have slapped me in the mouth, but I think he probably did slap. This was it was a different time. You could hit kids back then. But yeah, then he uh, the next birthday took me to Le Cirque, which is a three star New York Times restaurant. But dad Um, loved to dine, too. So he really led you along the path, didn't he? Yeah, dad loved to dine. And that was the only way that I could get his undivided attention because I was a middle child and, you know, older brother, great athlete, you know, straight A student, younger brother, tall, handsome, charming, annoying. I hate him still. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I was somewhere in the middle, like a little chubby kid who didn't have many discerning qualities. So I, I needed to get his attention somehow. So food... Uh, the way to his heart is through his stomach. So I I did exactly that. Well, your story takes a tragic turn pretty quickly on because that big brother, you tragically lost him very young. Yeah. So um, my brother passed away when I was 16 years old. He just turned 21. My parents were devastated. My parents turned to religion and my dad went kosher, became very strictly kosher. And so that bond that we had, the food bond was was suddenly gone. And, you know, rather than be understanding of my father, which I should have been, I kind of lashed out metaphorically and uh, decided, okay, well, if you're going to leave me alone on this food journey, not only am I going to go down it myself, I don't need you and I'm going to kill it. I'm going to do as well as I can do in this without you. And I'm going to start off with shellfish and pork, huh, you good Jewish boy? Yeah, shellfish and pork. I'd never eaten them before. And then I very reluctantly ate it. It took a while to stomach it. But then eventually I started going ham on it. No pun intended. 
your personal issues, your grief, you've dealt with them in very interesting ways. Hunting with Mo, yeah. that was a very interesting path to take. That Are you still hunting with Mo? I am still hunting with Mo. He's still my best friend and he uh, he's the one who introduced me to hunting. And, you know, it was an Iraqi Muslim and an Iranian Jew coming together, putting aside our differences to kill uh, a poor little duck. That was me at the extreme trying to recreate that relationship that I lost with my father. And it did not work whatsoever. But it set me on this path. My coping mechanisms ended up becoming you know, what I still love most in life, which is eating good food, going hunting. Rather than go to therapy, I turn to these things. Uh, and I think this book is like my realization that that was the wrong thing to do. But even so, you know, I, I hear it, it is what makes me me. Hunting aside, you know, you've set out to become a stand-up comic. Your success in Los Angeles really allowed you to then kick your foodie dining aspirations into high gear. And it's right about that time that you introduce us to Isabel, and she's as much of a foodie as you are, and you all are on this great life adventure. And then Massimo Batura happens to you. <laughs> so we were these foodie globetrotters. We'd go all over the world and country. And we were very blessed to, to be able to go to all these amazing places. Um, but it was all we put our money into. Like we were living in a studio apartment uh, on a mattress with no sheets because we were like, nope, we take all the money and we take it to food trips. <laughs> and um, we... Got a reservation at Massimo Baturo's restaurant, Osteria Francescana, in Modena, Italy, which is the number one restaurant. Um, well, it was not the number one restaurant at the time. But when we got to our reservation, which was a lunch reservation, it had become the number one restaurant the night before at the San Pellegrino Awards. So we were having the first meal ever at the best restaurant in the world. And it was just a magical experience. There were cameras there. People were interviewing us before we went in. So every course is coming out and one is better than the other. And we're on course nine of like 15 and it's a risotto and it comes out and we both take a bite and it's undercooked. Mm. Clearly undercooked. We take another bite. I didn't want to say anything. She didn't want to say anything. We didn't want to ruin each other's experience, but I could tell by looking at her and she could tell by looking at me that something was up. And then the question became, do you return a dish at the number one restaurant in the world on the day that it becomes the number one restaurant in the world? Regretfully, we returned the dish. <laughs> and then what happened? I mean, a cascade of events that the restaurant went crazy, like hushed tones behind walls, people whispering like, what the hell are these Americans doing? Like it was just, and then they brought like a, awful uh, substitution dish. But the chapter becomes a metaphor for our relationship and how uh, we would try to hide all of our failures and what wasn't working out. We would use these amazing meals to try to hide them or to, to avert our gaze from them. And if we couldn't have a great meal at the number one restaurant in the world, then, you know, it was time to call it quits. 
then there's drinking, there's misery, there's unhappiness. And a friend came up with a solution that humanized you. What was that, Dan? Yes. Uh, my buddy Byron Cavanaugh, he is a devout Catholic, uh, and he recommended that I join him on Meals on Wheels. Uh, so you didn't think it was a good idea, huh? No, I thought it was an awful idea. I, I, people bring me food. I don't bring people food, okay? Okay? But what happened to you, Dan? It was an amazing experience. Um, turning the tables and, and actually being the person bringing food to these these people who needed it made me realize how kind of fruitless this game was that I was playing and what was actually important in life. And it kind of turned a lens onto me that I was shining on other people. It finally uh, helped shine it on myself. And um, it was really wonderfully therapeutic and eye-opening and sad and happy and all these things. It was a jumble of emotions, but it was exactly what I needed to get me back on track. Since this is your very first attempt at memoir, et cetera, what did you learn about yourself writing the book? That's a great question. You know, when I started writing the book, and if you if you guys read the book, know this, I had no idea where it was going to end. I had four chapters that I knew were going to be in it. And so a lot of it was me looking at my life and seeing what could be turned into a story, like what food experience could be turned into a story. And I always say, like, when people ask me about, like, writing for TV or writing, you know, anything, I don't have a good imagination. I have an awful imagination. So because of that, I feel like I've become very good and hyper aware at looking into my life and things that happen in my life and seeing what can be material, either for stand up or whatnot. Um, and so in this case, I was just like doing a lot of self-reflection on food in my relationships, in my life, uh, in my childhood, in my adulthood. And so I'm going on this journey at the same time that you guys are going on the journey reading it, you know? So I learned a ton about myself. You know, the only point I'm going to make, and I want all the listeners to know this, because I know that when I talk about this book, it sounds like it's a sad book. And it's it's a it's a funny book. Trust me, this book can be good. Uh, it, it can be beach reading. It'll be fine. It's not too, too heavy. It's a very funny book, but it's got a lot of heart, which I think that is the sweet spot that I like to live in. That was stand-up comic, actor, and author Dan Adud. His book is Undercooked, How I Let Food Become My Life Navigator and How That's Maybe a Dumb Way to Live. Coming up next, we talk to Gabriel Nirbas and Andreas Rodriguez Orsua, who are working to keep Spanish heritage alive in New Orleans through food. Louisiana Eats returns after the break.
I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Crystal Hot Sauce, now celebrating 100 years of hot sauce deliciousness. Always made with just three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal hot sauce. Step out of the heat and into the flavor. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood, straight from Louisiana's waterways. Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Camellia Brand, beans done right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Camellia is celebrating their centennial with innovations for today's lifestyle. Beans for two. If a bag of beans is too big for your family, Camellia's New Orleans-style red beans for two and Cajun-style white beans for two has everything needed for dinner in today's smaller households. Learn more at CamelliaBrand.com. My name is Gabriel Nervas Ortelano. My name is Andres Rodriguez Ursua. In June, I received a lovely and unexpected invitation to a Noche de los Arteros. That's Night of the Rice Cookers for non-Spanish speaking folks like me. In fact, I'll apologize right now for any unintended mispronunciations. Gabriel Nirbas is a longtime listener of Louisiana Eats who was hosting that rice cooking event and knew I would be rabidly interested in the plans. You see, we're not talking about rice cookers that sit on your counter. I arrived at Gabriel's spacious backyard that hot June night to discover a couple of hundred people assembled over two open fires. The diverse crowd included everyone from Gabriel's Spanish mother, Isabel de Rocha, to the Consul General of Spain. Among them was rice cooker Andreas Rodriguez Orsua, who was manning one of the paella pans that night. Our host Gabriel had only recently become aware of the Sociedad Española, a local New Orleans group that works together to honor the heritage of the centuries-old sisterhood between New Orleans and Spain. After all, this was a Spanish colony for nearly four decades between 1763 and 1803. Gabriel explained to me that anyone who owns a big paella pan will find it regularly calls to you, suggesting you gather folks together to enjoy the communal pleasures heritage foods can bring. I invited Gabriel and Andreas into the studio to illuminate the magic their paella pans delivered to the Noche de las Ereteros. Gentlemen, what a treat to have new friends in the studio here. Um, for, you know, full disclosure, I didn't even know the two of you all until 
I got a very gracious invitation to Gabrielle's home, and it was for a paella party. Go ahead and dissect for me what exactly was going on at your home that night and why. Wow. So the idea was to share a bit of Spanish culture in the company of people who are Spaniards and in the company of the people whose heritage is Spanish. Really, we wanted to have an event that brought together the Spanish-speaking community of New Orleans. And uh, we got a little ambitious. I talked to Andres in advance. And the idea was, you know, let's have a paella party, but let's make it more than that. Let's, uh, let's call it the paella pulpo, which means octopus, and pan, which means bread. Ah, oh yes, that pan. That was a very special part of the evening. So is a paella party a very typical Spanish event to have? Well, yeah, it's, uh, and then some different parts of Spain, special part of Valencia, they are the original inventors of the paella. And then the rest of the Spain, they change a little bit because the paella in Valencia is not a seafood paella. And the people like it, so we keep it in doing. That's why when Gabriel tell me that I'm going to do the paella, I say, well, I'll make a marisco, the <laughs> seafood paella. <laughs> yeah, every region is very proud of their particular form of paella. And yeah. it's unique. You just take rice. I think the sofrito and the is similar. It's the same, yeah. But what goes into it, it depends. Is it a mountain town in the south where they make delicious sausage, uh, perhaps rabbit? Is it a coastal town where it's going to be clams and a lot of seafood? And each one claims theirs is the right way. Yeah. And uh, there used to be purists. I think there's still some purists. But you know, <laughs> seafood, seafood, meat, meat. Yeah. The rabbit paella is, oh, yeah. is a very famous and, one. In Valencia, they're supposed to use a rabbit, pork, and chicken ah. and vegetables. But to answer your question, it is actually quite normal to have paella and family gatherings on Sundays. Hmm. It's an all-day event. You know, the paellas are so beautiful. And you made sure I came over to the pans to see. W would you discuss the assembly and sure. give me the rundown of that? Well, I will let you know that the first step in making a paella starts in the mind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Once you have that vision, you can make the broth, okay, after you've invited the people you want to invite. It's the, broth, the principle. It's foundational. It's the base, yes. Right, because most people make rice with water, but that's not how you make a paella. The paella is made with a broth, and the type of broth I made was one I learned from my grandfather. So Louisiana seafood is excellent for paella. In fact, in many ways, some of the things we have might rival some of the things that you can find there. The shrimp shells, you peel the shrimp, you keep the heads, you saute them in a little bit of olive oil until they turn red. And that means the oil and flavors are rendering on the exterior of the shell. And then you turn the heat up even higher, in goes some white wine, and then that will steep overnight after you've cooked out the alcohol. And that is the beginning, that's the concentrate. Mm -hmm. Now many people, some people add um, hojas de laurel, some yeah. bay leaves bay and leaves some other and things. Yeah. Um, and then you supplement it with chicken broth if you'd like. There are other broths you can use. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but you make many things. You make gazpacho, you make the tortillas. I mean, 
They make a lot. lot well, of so stuff. he's right. So I actually put these people to work yeah. doing a number of things at once. So we were, while you asked about paella step by step, they were also making the tortilla de patatas with mm-hmm. me in the kitchen, and we were blending gazpacho, fresh gazpacho, mm-hmm. and I tasted it. It was amazing. Yeah, and then he cooked the pulpo. Yeah, oh, no, we the did the octopus. octopus. I forgot about that. Yeah, I mean, we had a production that yes. night, and the bread was the night before till one a.m. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you gentlemen really know how to yeah. throw a party. Well, yeah. we, you know, if you love what you're making and you know what you're trying to bring to others, mm-hmm. then it's it's actually not even, it's going to sound odd. It's not hard. Yeah. It's not like following a recipe at all. And so people are like, oh, my gosh, how much work? And I'm like, well, you know what? I got to experience this. And then to know that you get to share it with people. And I people I love and people that now I love that I didn't know I loved. And acquaintances. So that was another aspect of the party that I didn't mention. So I invited the Sociedad Española. I invited the Hispanic Chamber. I invited Tulane University Spanish and Portuguese professors, as well as Loyola's a Modern Language Department, and Puentes, a number of Hispanic organizations. I even invited Youth Empowerment Project. And then I decided to invite some people who I know are just great Hispanic people in the city who came here the hard way and work hard every day and I thought you know what who cares let's eat let's dance let's be together let's drink some wine together and that's just how it was but one thing that I have to say I believe when I was there and you were cooking and you you did have um, a panel of critiques off to the side who were sort of giving you a hard time about maybe <laughs> their preconceptions about what you were doing. Do you, do you, want, to, you want to tell well, me a Andres little about knows, that? Andres knows about the, the men who, yeah, they all know exactly <laughs> how to do it. And guess what? Every one of their opinions was different. Yeah. Oh, I know. <laughs> but, you know, the most important thing is when you cook, you try to give it sabor, this mm-hmm. flavor, no matter what you cook. And then they're going to like it. When I cook, I try. If I like it, I know they're going to like it. And then I don't take no criticism because I get you do it better. Oh, no. So then. And that's the thing. When you see Spaniards and Hispanic people in New Orleans, they're not all from the same village. Yeah. And even if they were from the same village, they'd have their ideas. Uh-huh. I mean, you, you know, here in New Orleans, that there, there's arguments about how the roux should be made. So. <laughs> Yes, it's nice to have them. They, even though they're like, "Hey, you should do this. You should do that." It's <laughs> they are supportive, being there, um, being a part, and that's another thing I really love about Spanish society, is you honor the elderly. Yes, they have a special seat at the yeah. table, and their wisdom is important. The elderly people live with the families and for the rest of their lives, for the most part. I mean, it's. It does happen that people do need to live in homes here and there, but it's not no, it's the not norm. No. But you, and but that's what I loved about that party is you had so many elderly people out till ten something p.m. Yeah. enjoying themselves with the little kids running around when yeah. they came down when we got them out of the second floor. Tell us about your family's heritage here and the true look of Spanish New Orleans that perhaps. The rest of us Francophiles have been missing. Andres. Well, um, I don't have no, no family over here. I guess the only one crazy enough to come into Louisiana. 
because I was reading too much about the Queen of Cotton and all the Galvez, all the, the, the Spanish heritage. So I want to come here and check. And that check is 50 years I live here. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's a seductive spot. Yes. And I find many Spanish um, events that I like. I like go to San Bernard. They have the Los Isleños Fiesta that I cook over there every year. And then the Sociedad Española, mm. all the little the things that society. we find over here, you know. And you, uh, it, uh, New Orleans is unique because if you go to another states, the food is not the same, believe mm. me. As far, I can tell you a little bit about my family. So my mother and father met at the running of the bulls in Pamplona. Uh, when my father was is from Lafayette, he was studying abroad in France, and he had read a, a lot of Hemingway and decided to run. And he was dressed all in white with the red sash, and so was my mom. And I don't remember who asked who for a cigarette, but that <laughs> kindled a love that started into pen pals for a year. And then he flew back over with his parents and uh, brought a bishop, because obviously Spain doesn't have enough bishops, and got married, and then brought her back to the States. And uh, my mom went to Newcomb and got her PhD at Tulane, and my father's an attorney now. But um, yeah, she raised us with Spanish in the household, and... Uh, most of my summers growing up, I lived in Spain uh, with my aunts and spent a lot of time with my grandfather. And that's where I learned to cook. This was definitely a man's sport that I observed the other night because it takes a real man to build a fire and cook a rice dish over a fire. Well, that's the original way of doing it. And... I'll tell you, having also lived in West Africa, it takes a real woman to make a strong fire as well. <laughs> However, I think that the fire is, for me, it's a very important way of cooking in general. And that's, you know, you're, there's the dance you're doing with the heat. There's the smoke. There's the certain char that you get that you don't get from a gas flame or an electric which, those are all fine ways of cooking. But if you're going to make a paella, I mean, how, where, where am I going to put a three-foot diameter pan? <laughs> really? I think fire is important. Uh, it's the original way of doing it. And I feel connected, actually, to the heritage doing it. That My grandfather's family used to cook it that way. What does the taste of the paella bring back to you all? You know, it's a lot of work. You do all this work. You do all this prep. And then when it's done and you finally get a bite of it. They bring, bring home. Mm. Yes, the flavor that you grew up with. And all the, all the memories of the friends and the family and everything. And good wine. Mm. You know, it's the way that we enjoy the weekends in Spain. The family get together, we cook anything, start eating jamón serrano with cheese and good wine, and then the seafood, and then the paella, and then if you eat everything they put on the table, you blow up. <laughs> <laughs> because they want you always eat, try this, try this, try the other one. It's like, you cannot do that. Yeah. You have to be careful when you go over there. <laughs> yeah, it's, it reminds me of summertime. Uh, well, because for me, that was... Those were my summers, uh. you know, two to three months growing up every summer. And it reminds me of my grandparents. It was a <laughs> lovely family event, and I was honored to be included. So thank you so much. I, I look forward to the next time. All right. You will be invited. Thanks, Poppy. <laughs> thank and thanks you. Thanks for having us. <laughs> thank you. 
That was Gabriel Nirbas and Andreas Rodriguez Orsua. Paella cookers extraordinaire. What are the ancestral ties between jambalaya and paella? Stay tuned, and we'll explore that topic when we come right back. Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, now doing for chicken what they've always done for fish. Fried chicken tenders, wings, sandwiches, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry has you covered with a mix specially for chicken. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. And from Visit the North Shore, discover world-class culinary flavors on the North Shore this fall. Experience the bounty of the bayou and the rich culture from award-winning chefs, soulful mom-and-pop restaurants, extraordinary bakers, and creative mixologists. To learn more, request the Explore the North Shore Visitor Guide for inspirational stories, custom itineraries, and event information at visitthenorthshore.com. St. Tammany Parish, Louisiana's Easy Escape, just 40 minutes from New Orleans French Quarter. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What are the ancestral ties between jambalaya and paella? Jambalaya and paella are both one-pot rice dishes filled with an assortment of meats, seasonings, sometimes seafood, and rice. Period. That is where the similarities end and the vast differences begin. One huge difference is the rice, which frankly is the most important element of both dishes. In Louisiana, you're likely to see jambalaya made with a long grain rice, while true paella uses shorter grain bamba rice, cultivated in eastern Spain. Jambalaya is spicier and either red with tomatoes creole style or brown as prepared in Cajun country, and both versions are usually inexpensive ways to feed a large crowd. Paella is flavored and colored a golden yellow with the expensive subtlety of saffron. Paella features more exotic seafood, like octopus, than you've ever found in a Louisiana jambalaya. So for the record, I don't buy into the whole kiss and cousin theory. In fact, jambalaya has a lot more roots in Africa than you'll ever discover in Spain. I'm Poppy Tooker, and jambalaya is true. 
Louisiana Eats. Barely 30 minutes northeast of New Orleans, you'll find a thriving, world-class culinary scene in Slidell, Louisiana. For over 20 years now, Duffy Ramirez has paved the fine dining path at Palmetto's on the Bayou. Beginning with a century-old homestead, Duffy expanded and grew his restaurant from the original 40 seats to today's capacity for up to 400 without ever losing the intimate feel of Palmetto's original cottage. When executive chef Ross Dover took the reins in Palmetto's kitchen, the operation took a serious step up. We sat down with Chef Ross in Palmetto's dining room to learn more about what drew him to this special spot along the bayou. You're a bayou boy, so you must feel right at home here, huh? Yes, ma'am. It feels <laughs> like I'm back at home. Tell me about how you first got interested in cooking and where your bayou path has brought you. Um, so I grew up in Homa, Louisiana, uh, very close to multiple bayous. Spent majority of my childhood on and off, you know, hunting camps, uh, boats, just kind of deer stands, duck camps, like whatever we can get our hands on back then. We were, we were kind of involved in anything outdoors. Uh, and then all of those activities in turn at the end turn into a cookout where you're either going to fry or prepare whatever you caught or killed for, for that day. And then my grandmother would be the one that I mainly would kind of see cooking afterwards. Like my dad and my stepdad, all their friends would fry or make a jambalaya or something really quick. But she was the one who would always save crab shells, shrimp heads, things to like enhance her cooking uh, down the road. So uh, watching her a lot really helped me to understand like how to piece together, you know, every little bit of what you brought home. And what did you call her? Uh, I called her my mama, Loretta. Uh, you had a mama? Yeah, that was my mama. I had one, too. Yeah. The gumbo you make here at Palmetto's on the Bayou is a bit of a tribute to her. Uh, very much so. It's, uh, it's definitely a base for the recipe. We've kind of adapted it to, to be our own here because we have uh, a beautiful big smoker that we use to smoke our own ducks and make our own tasso kind of just elevated ingredients to what she would normally have, which would be smoked sausage, crab legs, you know, things she would pull out of the freezer. But uh, as far as like that preparation, that step-by-step, -step, how to ensure flavor and how to build flavor and really like kind of build love within that pot, you know, that came from her. You are very fortunate to have one of the great cooking schools truly in America, right there on the bayou also, huh? Yes, ma'am. Um, so I, I originally went to school to be an, uh, an x-ray tech because my mother was a nurse, and I thought, you know, I might as well try to my hand and see what I could do in that field. Uh, I didn't make it a semester into, <laughs> into college before I realized maybe I should try something else, you know? And uh, I ended up back in Homa, through mutual friends, I was able to get a job at a seafood restaurant, pretty big seafood restaurant down there, Big Al's. And over the next like five years or so, I just worked boiling seafood, 
working in the kitchen, doing catering, kind of like growing my love for Louisiana cooking and like what it can be at a place that's established in my hometown. And uh, that allowed me the time to work towards getting to culinary school. Uh, I had to go to a couple years of junior college before I was able to get there. So it only made my hunger to be there a lot more uh, prevalent. So when I got there, it was strictly business. Wanted to make sure I did my best. And that led to me having opportunities to work at some of the nicest places in New Orleans at the time, you know. Uh, it got me the externship at August and kind of like stepped my career forward from just being a part of Nichols culinary program. And then you had a very special time at Johnny Sanchez working for Aron. Yeah. And it was fun to see a different side of cooking, you know, a uh, different prep, uh, mm-hmm. like preparation wise, different techniques. And it really like harbored my love for uh, like Latin cuisine. And then I was able to travel a lot with Aron. So I was able to see the outside uh, reach that a chef can have, you know, on, on people's lives. And it definitely helped me grow as a leader, as an individual, and really like focus on what I could do better, you know, moving forward. Well, Restaurant them. August in New Orleans is such a bastion of fine dining. Oh, yeah. And so you actually had become executive chef there. Yes, ma'am. Right before your career moved to Slidell. Yeah. I, I enjoyed working in the CBD. I think the pandemic really put a lot of things into perspective for me. Uh, yeah. the, the time that I was in New Orleans was very focused on my career. So when I took over August as the executive chef, uh, it kind of just encompassed my whole life, you know, for a good year and a half. And when the pandemic hit and that time got taken away and I was able to open it up to see my family more and to be able to be there for them more, I realized how much time I missed and how important that is to, to not just like them, but to me in my life. So when the opportunity came to be closer to them, it was like a perfect storm. I, I, I loved working in the city. I loved the standards at August and the people I worked with. It was just for me and for my, my family, it was the best decision because we all know time is something we, we don't get back, you know? No. And careers are careers, but that relationship you build with little ones, like that's super important, you know? That was Ross Dover, executive chef at Slidell's Palmetto's on the Bayou. Next, we were joined by restaurateur Duffy Ramirez, for whom Palmetto's on the Bayou has been a labor of love for more than two decades. Duffy, what a special spot you've got here. You know, the, the images on radio were never so good, but looking around the literally surrounded by palmettos, surrounded by this beautiful woody scene with cypress trees and moss and oak trees. It's beautiful here. You've been here how long? We've been, we've been open 21 years and it took us a couple years to build. So I've been on this property for about 23 years. You know, it's a quintessential Louisiana environment. You just feel like you're out in, uh, the swamp somewhere, and you're, you're right off, you know, it's five minutes off the interstate, and it's beautiful in the daytime, and then at dusk, the sun sets right behind us on the bayou, so that's magical, all the different shadows and the 
lighting. And then at night we have um, all of our trees lit in different kind of ways and, it, and little twinkle lights and we put candles. And so it's, it's, you know, we're very fortunate to have this, you know, natural environment to work with. Take us through how this property has grown. It all just started off in that little front room in the bar. How many seats up there? We have like 40 seats in the front, and we just kept piecing it together like a Lego set. And we're here, and I've you know, got plans to keep going. You know, you told me that at max for cocktail parties, you can do upwards of 400, going from <sighs> 40 to 400 it's quite a feat. Well, it, it just happened incrementally, and we would literally book a party and then build enough to do the party. And so it was a real, <laughs> it's a real survival thing. You know, we started off very underfunded, and um, you know, like entrepreneurs do, you just jump in and try to make it work. You know, real fortunate to have Chef Ross come on board, and we just acquired a, a great general manager named Jorge Toro, who has. Uh, a long story pass at Commanders and with the Dickey Burning Group. And so we are trying to be as good as we can and trying to surround ourselves with the best people we can to make it all happen. Well, what's really lovely are the huge decks take you right down to the landing, to the bayou. Mm -hmm. And I understand that some of your guests often will come by water. They sure So you can tie up to the dock here? You can pull right up a boat, and, and people do all the time. And then there's a whole marina next to us, um, but, but we have a nice little dock, and Heritage Park is right next to us, which is a great little park, and they do productions. The Crab Festival will be happening there, and we have uh, Bayou Jams and... So people come and park on our docks and park next door on the, at the park and, and walk over to us. So it's, it's just a great uh, asset to Slidell, um, the park, and, and it's a great you know, asset to us to be on the water like we are. And it's a beautiful little bayou. It's Bayou Bonfica, and it goes right to uh, Lake Pontchartrain, and Bayou Liberty intersects right before you get to the lake. This is an old historic part of Slidell, and, uh, and you get a sense of that. You know, when you come down to our little restaurant, you can see how uh, this waterway was the lifeline of the area and, and how the, the bricks and the, and the lumber and whatnot, you know, made its way to the city. Tell me what Palmetto's on the Bayou means to the community. Well, I'd like to think that we are, you know, a really special part of the community. We cer certainly try to be. It's a, it's a special occasion kind of place, and so a lot of people have been engaged here, you know, and we help set up, you know, special tables, and, you know, everybody's peeking and watching when people come in to do that. And then, of course, a lot of people get married here and then come back for their anniversaries, and, you know, and that's the best part of the business is, is just being part of, you know, the community and, and, and these special times. That was Duffy Ramirez and Chef Ross Dover of Palmetto's on the Bayou in Slidell, Louisiana. That 
that's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats. Edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where over a decade of Louisiana Eats is available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. And don't forget to rate us on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, Visit the North Shore, and Camellia Beans, celebrating their centennial with an innovative new product, Beans for Two. Camellia's new Red Beans for Two and White Beans for Two include everything needed to cook two authentically seasoned bowls of beans, scaled for today's smaller households. Learn more at CamelliaBrand.com. And from D'Agostino Pasta, celebrating our culture with fleur-de-lis, crawfish, and alligator-shaped pastas. All handcrafted in Louisiana, just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlo and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producers Blake Longlinay and Steve Himmelfarb, with writing contributions from Becky Retz, and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. <laughs>